So welcome to the session on the 22nd of June. This is the winter solstice, is it not? So the, the good news is that as of tomorrow the days get longer and we get closer to summer. But for now we're going to do a variation of Yoga Nidra that we will do seated. Now, Yoga Nidra, as you recall, is a technique that we do that is not meditation, but it is a companion practice to meditation, which affords you deep, deep relaxation and replenishment, but it also opens your, or gives you access to unconscious, the unconscious mind where is stored deep-seated impressions patterns from the past and we use the practice uh, to dissolve those and so in a sense the work that you do in yoga nidra then helps the work you're doing in meditation because it's clearing it out it's clearing out all the stuff that sits between you and the experience of you as uh, an infinite um, uh, as, uh, as consciousness itself. So we begin by sitting comfortably upright in the chair with our head, our neck and our back in alignment. The advantage and the reason for this is that if the spine is straight then it stops you falling asleep and that's the reason that we tend to meditate seated whether on the floor or in a chair uh, it just prevents the uh, mind from just entering a, skipping the meditation state and going into a sleep state so i'm going to guide you through the various parts of the body and the key here is to just simply touch each part with your awareness lightly so you can imagine it either as a moving point of light touching each part or simply as just a sensation or simply as an image of the area that we're talking about or just simply as a, an imagined um, uh, contact with that point. So we begin with the forehead. So we're just sitting comfortably upright and we're allowing the awareness to move into the forehead region. And then to the right eyebrow, the left eyebrow, and the space at the center of the eyebrows. The right eye, the left eye, and the nose, the right cheek, the left cheek, the right ear, the left ear, the upper lip, the lower lip, and the jaw, the back of the head, 
back of the neck, the throat, the right shoulder, the left shoulder, the right upper arm, the left upper arm, the right elbow, the left elbow, the right lower arm, the left lower arm, the right wrist, the left wrist, the right hand, the left hand, the right thumb, the right index finger, middle finger, ring finger, and the little finger of the right hand. Bring your awareness to the left thumb, the left index finger, middle finger, ring finger, and the little finger of the left hand. Become aware of the entire right arm, the entire left arm, the right shoulder, the left shoulder, the right shoulder blade, the left shoulder blade, the space at the center between the shoulder blades, the middle of the back, the lower back, the right shoulder, the left shoulder, the right side of the chest, the left side of the chest, space at the center of the chest corresponding to the heart center, the rib cage, the organs within the rib cage, the abdomen and the organs, the right buttock, left buttock, right hip, left hip, the right thigh, the left thigh, the right knee, the left knee, the right lower leg, the left lower leg, the right ankle, the left ankle, the right heel, the left heel, the right foot, the left foot, the right big toe, the right second toe, middle toe, 
fourth toe and the little toe of the right foot. Bring your awareness to the left big toe, second toe, middle toe, fourth toe and the little toe of the left foot. Become aware of the entire right leg, the entire left leg, the entire right arm, the entire left arm, the torso, the head, the neck, and the entire body. Become aware of the body as a complete unit. Feel the energy of the body as a complete unit. Become aware of the breath. Follow the breath with the awareness as it moves in and out. Allow the awareness to ride on the breath. Imagine the body as an empty void, hollow inside. As the breath moves in, it enters the hollow space, the void of the body, filling to every extremity, cleansing, sweeping, dissolving any blockages or resistance. and you breathe out any resistance. Continue breathing in this way using the cleansing, sweeping breath to move through the body and dissolve all resistance, all energy blockage, impurity, disease, whether manifest or not manifest. Returning the body to a pristine state of purity. Bring the awareness to the space between the eyebrows. As you breathe, imagine you're breathing in through the space between the eyebrows with a breath of light filling the head. In and out through the space between the eyebrows. <coughs> 
you may feel a warmth, tingling, feeling of energy at the area of the space between the eyebrows. This space corresponds to the chakra known as the third eye, the Ajna chakra, which is the seat of consciousness in the waking state. It's the center of insight, knowledge. Bring the awareness down to the region at the throat. throat chakra, the Vishuddhi, is the center of consciousness during the dream state. As you breathe in and out of this area, you cleanse, purify and re-energize the throat chakra, the center of expression, creativity, speech. communication. All these faculties are enhanced when we energize this chakra. Finally, we bring the awareness down to the region at the center of the chest corresponding to the heart chakra, the lotus of the heart. This is the seat of consciousness during the state of deep sleep and through this area, this zone, we enter the state of yoga nidra, yogic deep sleep. But this area is also the area corresponding to the chakra that, through which we experience love. personal love and also universal love. As we allow the awareness to sink deeper into the area of the heart chakra, allow the feeling to become one of peace, surrender, into the emptiness of the infinite space of the heart. Deep, 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 empty, empty, empty. And my voice will resume again in three minutes.
Bring your awareness back to the breath. Before we leave this state, there's an opportunity to form an intention which we can plant into the space, the infinite space of the heart. So if you have any desire, any need for healing, if you have any wish for the welfare of another person, whatever it is, form the intention now. Encapsulate it into the subtlest expression of an idea, whether it be a word or an image or a name, single word, single image, single name, or encode the intention. which you then release into the infinite space of the heart. Allowing it to move to its destination, the fulfillment of the desire. Do so with the certainty that anything, any desire that you release, that you plant, that you intend in this way will surely find its target. Knowing that this process will work now in the background, within the unconscious mind. to bring about the desired result. Feel that it continues to work within you, even as you bring your awareness back to the physical body and to the breath and to the movement of the fingers and toes. your awareness of the room as you take a deep breath, stretch, and then come back. I call this the cheapest form of space travel ever invented. <laughs> Do you sense a shift? So that's, I mean, not doing it on the floor has its limitations. You don't actually go into, I don't think you went into a deep a state of sleep. Did I did disappear. Did you disappear? Mm. Yeah. So this is a form of what we call transcendence which is a, a sort of complicated word that basically just means moving beyond mind. Using the mind to move to an experience greater than mind, you could say. It's probably still mind in the sense that you're still using intention, you're using visualization, you're using a movement of awareness. 
these are all mind functions, but th there is also another process that is initiated when we do this, which is beyond mind. In fact, we're reconnecting with a larger part of ourselves, more infinite, more perfect, more complete, more whatever superlative you want to use, that aspect. And as a result, you probably feel now a little different, a little transformed, right? That's the sign. That's the signature of the state. It's the hallmark. You know, when you buy jewelry, there's a hallmark. They stamp it on there. It's the, it's the, the uh, designation of authenticity. So the authenticity of this practice is in the experience that you bring back with you. That the sense of transformation that occurs is very powerful. And all we did was sat in a chair and listened and used will and visualization. And this is just a tiny instance or an example of the power and the potential that we have to change our own reality, our own experience of life. So we no longer need to be a victim of circumstance. We become the master of our own destiny. If we permit ourselves to relieve or release limitation, that's what we're doing in this practice. Normally we're working within a very limited frame of self-image, self self-concept. When someone invites you to experience yourself as unlimited, with the proper guidance, it's not hard to have that experience. It's very available. It's so close, so close. Closer than your breath, they say, is the state. Anyone have any profound experiences, any insights? You don't have to share, it's alright to just smile and nod or do nothing at all. <laughs> you feel peaceful and relaxed? Uh -huh. That's good. Now, Kalyani sent me a thing that I'd apparently said uh, what, a long time ago oh, I guess, yeah. that she'd posted on Sometimes Facebook. Comes stuff I don't know where it comes from, there's just stuff away. comes and you just, she, she captured it and I, and I listened to it today and I thought that sounds more profound than anything I could come up with. <laughs> so I should at least... Um, but you said it. Well, it, yeah, it's, it was said. Now I have to find it. And then I'll read it to you, and you can you can contemplate. Uh, it was actually someone that had asked me a question. It might have been Mitch, who used to come here. And the question is, what is it that moves us from meditation to the waking state? And when we when we finish meditating and we move. So we're, mo we're transitioning between states, like we did then. We transition from waking into some other state. Nidra. What is it? And then the answer is this. The same thing that moves us from waking to sleep and from sleep to dreaming. The same thing that creates thought 
and allows thoughts to subside. These are just different movements or conditions of mind. Go to the state beyond movement or condition, which exists in, through and beyond all states. Then the question becomes of no importance. You cannot know a thing from within itself. When the mind inquires, why do I know this or that, it cannot know. It only speculates and theorizes. But when there is no I that asks, then the answer is known. So, I think what I was saying <laughs> was that there is a point you reach where you drop the question, that the knowledge, there are different, there, there's, rel there's obviously relative knowledge, right? There's relative knowledge, this is a, a petal, and we can describe it, we can apprehend it with our senses, describe its colour, its shape, its texture. We can put it under a microscope and we can analyze its composition to a degree. But there is such a mystery in even this thing. The processes, do you know how many biochemical reactions are occurring within this at, at, the, at a molecular level? They say, when I was studying human biology at uni, they said that within one square millimeter of the liver, there are 200,000 chemical reactions going on. This is the complexity within life. I've just come out. I did think it, and then you said it. It depends whose liver we're talking about. It could be more, you're saying. Maybe I should have picked another <laughs> organ. <laughs> Take the brain, okay. <coughs> but to see the complexity within life, that we're not even aware, we're not even at the beginning of knowing. We think we, we get so arrogant with our knowledge that we think we know. And yet you take the simplest thing like a petal and you inquire into its nature. And you can't, the mind can't, mind doesn't have the answer to that. Even science can't completely know because, you know, the, 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 all the things that there are to know, and if you consider that's one example, now multiply that by every, every thing in the room. Let's just start with the room, the composition of the table, of water, of the forces that govern the reactions within the growth of the, the rose. You know, it's beyond comprehension. And here we sit with our arrogance. And when I say, when you drop the eye, it's this concept of ego that we think we know, that we formed a view of the world that we operate in. And it, it suffices for, at, at a survival level, it's obviously you've, you've got this far, you didn't die yet. So there's some aspect of your knowledge of your, the effectiveness of mind-body's relationship with the environment that 
that is enough to at least get you by. But we shouldn't pretend that we know anything. In the sen in the broader sense of the infinite, you know, pool of things that are to be known, or could be known, we can't. We can never. Mind can never apprehend that. So what what the invitation is to drop, the drop the quest, use of uh, not acquiring knowledge through mind or through language, and instead. I guess we're talking about intuition, more intuiting, knowing the nature of things. I'm, I'm sure that Lao Tzu says something of this nature, that uh, without looking out of my window, I can see the whole world. Without stepping out of my door, I can know all things in heaven. Have you heard that saying? It's a Beatles song, actually. It's called, uh, what? Within me, within you, without you. This is this idea of that you can intuit you can by knowing uh, the nature of self you can know all things because it's consciousness that's containing the information the blueprint of creation is all contained within consciousness how can you know consciousness and the answer is not through the mind so there is do you sense there's a sort of truth inherent in this idea to know but to not know with the mind but to, to know at a deeper level when they just call it the knowing the knowing so that was the that was the insight is that when someone asked the question of what is it that moves the mind or the awareness from the waking to the dream state or from the the um meditative state into the waking state what is that force what is that what is the what governs the tendency to move and I, and I, the answer is I don't think it's knowable you can't know that as a as a conceptual thing another way of saying it is things just are that there is just this creation that exists and, and you can, we'll never know, you could call it the mystery of life do you know that thing, you've got this tendency, we all have this tendency that we need to know things, it's, a, it's almost an addiction I mean, it, there are positive applications of that, no doubt, all the things that benefit us are things that have arisen from the quest to know, but this is at the relative level they can't give you happiness. So what happens, I guess really where this leads is, what happens when you desire, when you drop the desire to know, to analyze, to speculate, and you just then recede into being, into the state of acceptance of what is the I am, the now. And often when you read books about learning, about the mind, or you read it and you think, oh, I really knew that. Mm. It's like you already knew it, but you just had to relearn it. So in, the, in, in yoga theory, there's this concept, have you heard of the Akasha? The concept of Akasha? It's a, it is a, um, 
One of the meanings of akasha is it means space, infinite space. But the concept is that all knowledge is already contained in the fabric of the universe. That when someone makes a discovery, um, they didn't actually invent the thing that they discovered. The insight that they had didn't just come into 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 being. Then it was always there. Right, you get this idea. I mean, it's, a profound thing, isn't it? it's very profound. And the example I give my son was studying physics last year, and I was thinking about this: where do the laws of physics come from? You know, someone discovers E you equals them, E equals M C squared was already there. One and one equals two was already there before there were was humans around to to codify that. So is, is it the same thing as when? Someone may have invented something that's out of the world, mm-hmm. and then someone else at the same time. I think or a so. Time. I think it is. I think what's happening is that they're both tuning into the same knowledge at the same time. That was one of the when you went to the quantum conference. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that was brought up. This it's a well-known thing in science. Uh, this uh, idea of simultaneous discovery. And, you know, Marconi and Bell both claimed to have invented the telephone at the same time. And there was uh, Darwin and who was the other guy? There's many instances of this. Many of these great discoveries were claimed to have also been discovered by someone else about the same time. And I think basically what it is is that when the mind engages in an inquiry, it takes on a certain vibrational state that is aligning it with the solution but the solution's already out there and what insight and inspiration is is that you draw it out of the akasha into consciousness and and then it's the eureka moment but the knowledge was already there just the awareness yeah the awareness of the fact of the discovery comes into being it crystallizes into that moment Yeah, I'm not sure. Giving it form, you're giving it, you're giving it a receptacle in which it can condense. I mean, we can use many metaphors, but what I'm trying to uh, get to here is this idea that if you can imagine that all knowledge is already there, already contained, and all we're doing when we, when we uh, know or learn something, or, or, or I think insight is really what I'm honing in on here. Where does the where does the inspiration where does the insight come from and and where then the solution and einstein i remember said something like uh, no solution is ever found at the same level of consciousness as the problem you so have is that to why when you go to sleep something you go to sleep with a problem and in it either if you think of it in the morning or it right. comes into your head it, you have to move outside of the problem space before the solution can come. So there's this, uh, this transcendence idea that we experience with the Yoga Nidra is also a parallel process is when we're problem solving. If we're creating something, you actually do the... I do training in creativity for executives. Sometimes we do work on innovation. And you know this idea of brainstorming? That you're trying to crack a problem with your mind and and if you've ever done a brainstorming session, one of the rules is that you cannot negate anything that comes up. 
you have to just allow the process to run. But often what happens is, it's what happens after the brainstorming session, is when the solutions start to come. When you're in the shower or mowing the lawn or, you know, you've all had that experience where you get it. So it seems that the preparatory work is necessary, as you say, giving it name, or as I would say, creating a receptacle for it. That's what the preparation phase is. Right, it's where we're we're striving to, we're, we're looking, and I think that sets up to use an energy analogy, maybe some sort of vibrational state of frequency, that is, that is calling almost to the answer to come. And if they're of a similar nature, the problem solution, it will it will that the two will collide, and that's the inspiration. So the question was, how do we know what drives what what moves us from one state of consciousness to another? And, and the answer is by dropping the I, by dropping the inquiry, you will get the answer. So essentially you put the question, sure enough, it's okay to have the question, but then you have to release it. You let the question go and then, you, and, and then what you've set up is basically a pattern that is almost like the signature or the lock and key that for every question that can be posed there is potentially an answer out there, but it's the way in which you pose the question question, and then release it. Uh, you give the intention that we did before, and then you allow, then you just let it go. And then it comes. So there is this idea, this transcendent idea of transcending the problem, putting it, articulating it, and then releasing it. So. By this process, we can know we can know anything, but you can't get there by the the Western model is brainstorming, or or um, using a computer or something, some mechanical process of mind or machine. That will get you so far, but it will never give you. The totality, whereas you see when Mozart and Beethoven were composing, they would often get the whole symphony. I mean, you've got a music background, you know that the story's about, and it comes whole to them. It doesn't come one note at a time. Often it will come, they download it. So where was it before it came to them? If they, And they, often they will describe, Einstein, all these theorists say, they felt that it came as a revelation to them. It's a powerful thing, isn't it, to think that we can, that there is the, that the information, that the fundamental nature of consciousness is this massive, infinite system of information that holds the potential of every single thing that can be, was, is now, is all present at once, in all places. And we sit here, um, you know, and presume to know, presume to be experts. <laughs> and I just think that's kind of funny. So, what's the invitation here? Not, not a, it's not a problem to seek, to desire, to know. But perhaps apply this technique of just 
letting go, uh, forming the question as we form the intention, and then just and then just letting it go, and then waiting, and then see what happens. It's the same dynamic as what we did when we set the intention around a desire. It's the same thing. It's like we're creating this whole thing. So we set the intention. The power of the creation is in the ability to put a an idea surrounded with an energy. And then we release into the infinite, in, in this case, the infinite space inside. And what meditation does is it gives you the patience to allow and to wait for the answer to come. Sometimes you want the answer straight away. That's the conditioned mind wants it now. But I think part of it is you do the work and then you release it and then you just have to be empty. And the more that you can do that in this in the creativity training we do, it's about the insight becoming less of a random event. So typically it's a random thing. You have to walk along the beach or you'll be in a shower or something and it will come. That's a pretty random thing. What we're trying to talk about here is by, by, by maintaining a, um, a sense of open awareness without expectation, because remember you've let that go now. You had to let, let it go and then you hold it open. You increase the probability of the insight coming because you've created a more fertile and receptive environment for it to come into. And you can apply this in every aspect of your life. So is then that sort of like living in consciousness? Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it's kind of like being empty a lot more of the time. This idea of receptacle is a really interesting one, isn't it? Receptacle, for me, we think about it as an object that holds something, but really that contains within it the word to receive. Receptacle. And so there's this, it's almost like a, an attitude that we take on where we become empty. You can't, my grandfather used to say, you can't fill a glass more than what it can hold. When a glass is full, it can receive no more. And so this is the sort of attitude of the arrogant, uh, egoic uh, presumption that we know we know something. You know, there's people that you say you can't tell them anything. <laughs> this is the opposite of what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about receptivity, it's the person that, I mean, again, Lao Tzu is really big on this idea of being ignorant, of dropping the arrogance, of thinking that we know, and just being the fool. Being the one that... And it's not a feigned ignorance, it's actually recalibrating your attitude to being the one that is empty. Be empty. Because I think what, what happens, I'm just intuiting this, is that if this consciousness will just fill that. And then the answers are there when you need them. I remember our, 
this, this idea of that in Patanjali they talk about there are sutras you can do that give omniscience and you read it and you think well that'd be cool and what's the sutra it says by samyama on whatever so um, uninterrupted uh, concentration leading to some samadhi so you merge with the object of con- contemplation and then the knowledge flows in it's basically the same thing but he's saying on some i can't remember what the sutra is but it's if you do samyama on different objects you get different forms of knowledge i remember one uh, by some by samyama on the moon you get knowledge of all the celestial bodies of the paths of the planets and the, the nature of the, the celestial world so, so the samyama would be that you would bring the moon into contemplation, right? We can, I can show you a samyama. Do you want to try one? So you close your eyes. This is a pretty advanced practice, but if you can do any stillness, if you can get stillness, you can do a samyama. So you just bring into the awareness the image of the moon. Right now it's not bad because it's outside anyway and it's, it's just one quarter off full. I was looking at it this morning. And so you hold the image of the moon with the craters that you can see. Maybe it's at night time. And you feel, you feel the moon, you feel it. It's, it's a, it's a, a touching, an interaction of it that is more than just the word. You try and, this is like we're longing to know its nature. So there's, then the next step is once you've formulated that, uh, the feeling of it, the image slash feeling starts to merge into one. Right, if you've got that. And then the next stage is, there has to be a form of communion with the moon in the sense that you merge, you allow the awareness to merge with it. So that it's no longer separate and outside of you. This, this might sound very new age, but the, the invitation is almost to become the moon. Do you get a feeling of that? that you basically merge with the object of contemplation. That you feel that your own body is the body of the moon. That you know it from within. And then from there we would go into it, you would just release that into a meditation. And Patanjali would say that if you practice this process, that you would begin to intuit the not the object of the sutra, which is in this case the knowledge of the star of the celestial being objects. It would just start to come to you, but you've opened a channel, a connection with that which is held in the akasha as information, as knowledge, and now you are the conduit. You're, you're bringing it to yourself, and then it arises within you as just the intuitive knowledge, just an innate knowing. 
Hmm? Powerful? So that's Samyama. And he's got about, I can't remember, I mean there's quite a few sutras there, but it's, I think it's the fourth chapter, it's the last chapter where he goes into, these are the supernatural powers, they're called cities. Are you getting a feeling of the potential of this, just from that little slight experiment, that there is this conduit to the truth, and it has nothing to do with rational thought. It's a much more direct way of connecting with the information that is already held as a property of consciousness. Could you do that on yourself, instead of picturing the moon? Yeah, you can do Samyama on just about anything, really. I mean, uh, th there are other cities where you can know, uh, I've taught people here that have had um, visions of their own internal body. They see their body, they can see their internal organs. And that yogis use this to diagnose illness. It's a form of spiritual healing or diagnosis. They can look into the body and they can see. These are all things, I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked with this because our objective is liberation. And there's a big trap in all these cities because they will, some of them will arise spontaneously during the course of your practice over the years. They'll come and then you might lose them again. But the idea is not to. And in fact, there's a big trap, there's ego traps around this, right? You can see straight away that if you suddenly be, be uh, if you're suddenly possessed with the knowledge of the ability to do certain things, or even to manifest things, you know, there are people around. So is that like people that say that they can heal? Is that's actually what they're doing? Mm. If it's at that level, if it's at that higher level of healing, I mean, there's different. There's energy healing, which is just straight energy healing which is itself pretty miraculous, but there is even higher forms of healing where it's just like you would imagine, um, I think when Jesus Christ would bring people back to life, that kind of thing, and he didn't do anything. It was just like he was so aligned that it was just his mere will alone was able to manifest that. That's extremely rare, but it can. it's documented within the yoga literature. I think Nichananda brought someone back to life that had died. Anyway, it's there to if you want to search it out. It's interesting. Um, but I guess what I'm talking about here today is just this idea of the infinite potential that is contained within consciousness and what we have to what we can do, how we can be in relation to it so that it becomes accessible to us. And then you have the capacity to be utilizing far more of your potential to become more like the you know the composers that can intuit entire works or you know the mathematicians that will see theorems they will write pages and pages and pages and where is it coming from and my friend Roy in um, Hong Kong that actually wrote the seminal work on creativity and meditation that uh, when in his undergraduate years was able to memorize entire textbooks the day before the exam in one case he told me he got the timing wrong and he realized he hadn't allowed enough time to study for economics and he sat there and he told me he was turning a page at a time of the textbook he's got no reason to make this up the guy's a professor adjunct professor at the University of um, Technology in Hong Kong He's also a neuroscientist and he's also a long-time meditator. 
And he said he was turning the pages. As he was meditating. No, he was. In, he went into, I think, a semi, a, a hypnagogic state, like a, a in between waking and sleep, turning the pages one at a time, and encoding basically all the information in the book. And the next day, he went and wrote a perfect paper. And the knowledge was all there. Now that I mean that sounds phenomenal when you hear about it. You go, how is that possible? But it's not the first instance. There are so many stories about people with this. And what is it that they're? What are they doing? What where is where is well, the? We say they have superpowers. Yeah, but really they don't. They've just got. They're just. Everyone's got that power. I think we all have that potential. But the key is how do you unlock it? And I think the answer is it has to do with being empty. It's being the receptacle. It's this attitude of not presuming that we know. The better the attitude of presuming that we know nothing. And then focus on the thing that you want to know about. I suppose if you wanted to do that technique, yeah, then be empty. Set up the connection with the object like we did with the moon similar kind of idea as that go and experiment take it away try it out see what happens but i really sense that there is some real truth in what we're saying here and and there is enough there are enough inklings around through the experience that we read about the anecdotes of people that have made these big discoveries and they never say that they sat there and they sat at the desk and they didn't get up until they had the answer. It will always the stories are that they were walking through a park. Isn't that phenomenal? That they were doing something that was unrelated to the inquiry at the time when it came. So. In this way, all things can be known. So what is there out there that we haven't yet tweaked to? I mean, there must be... Think of... Do you ever think about what society... If we don't destroy ourselves, which is on the cards, but putting that to one side, there's a, there's a great um, website called... Is it called Future World? And it's scientists from around the world have put predictions of from here to the next I think it goes out to 500,000 years so they're going the next 50 years the next 10 years 20 years 50 years 100 years um, thousand years 5,000 years and they're talking about uh, humans that are able to fly walk through walls so it starts to look very much like the yoga superpowers but even before then uh, telepathy is more developed in humans, say in another couple of hundred years. This is the, the stuff that they're projecting now, based on current rates of inquiry and development. Supercomputers, obviously, artificial intelligence, you get to all that. Then you get to um, anti-gravity machines, levitation of objects, all of that. So th this is just a little sliver of what a group of scientists are thinking is um, within our capabilities given sufficient time that we can start to modify the laws of physics 
that make an object defy gravity and that will become the basis of future spacecraft that they won't be burning you know hydrazine or whatever they use to get off the ground these days and then you go and look at the Mahabharata and they talk about flying machines don't they Kalyani mm. that's 5,000 years ago in these texts they're talking about machines that would levitate off the ground so they'd already predicted plane yeah oh that there are you know that Sanskrit came to us as a language that is a more perfect language than anything it's the closest language that they're trying to find the language for artificial intelligence for, for um, that, that is syntactically perfect and grammatically perfect and they keep and there's a guy in NASA that's written on Sanskrit now Sanskrit's a language that the rishis intuited through meditation and they're saying now is the probably the best language you can use for artificial intelligence because it is so perfect in its construction there is no ambiguity and the rishis have used Sanskrit and the yogic scriptures to describe ways of attaining states of consciousness and they had to, it had to be precise because you had to have the right instruction. It was all encoded within the chanting. So where did Sanskrit come from? There's the question. Was it, and that, that their answer is it was already there. And they just pulled it down. They, they all, it came, it was revealed, you could say, another way of saying it. It was received. Saying there's all these things that exist, but it hasn't yet come down for any bit. Hmm. Because we're maybe not in the right state of development of our own consciousness where we can tap in. But all these things are, anything's possible. Basically, that's the, the bottom line of this whole thing is anything is possible. And so, as people that are doing yoga and meditation, you know, you thought you were coming here to learn how to relax and chill out and stuff, and suddenly you get this whole dump on. Um, science and, and human potential but the, but the whole thing is it's it's related you can't separate it who were the scientists again where do you look it up online look up any look up um simultaneous discovery and you'll see, I think the guy, was it Fleming that, in, that discovered penicillin? And then someone else claimed to have done it about the same time. But those things can only happen when, when it's deemed that the world or, or the major part of the population is actually ready to actually go those next steps? Presume, I think so, I think, I don't know, but I, I think that there has to be a, there has to, if it's consciousness revealing to consciousness, right so it's consciousness and then there's a you could say a human consciousness that is making the inquiry then there has to be an attunement for the knowledge to 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 appear to be received there has to be this attunement that we so what what we did with the moon do you get that sense that you were tuning in that's sort of what we're talking about here. It's the same kind of idea. So you're only going to stay on a level that's that's accessible and that fits. What I'm trying to say is you're not going to be given anything that you just can't use in this. You probably wouldn't have the capacity to interpret it. It would be too advanced. Mm. 
So you go to people like Tesla. Do you know about Tesla? Mm -hmm. So absolute genius. Totally into all this stuff. What I'm talking about now, you could go and read what Tesla said. He would be 100% in agreement. This idea of that all information is already contained. I'm oh. sure... Yeah, but it was named after him, oh. <laughs> in honor of him, <laughs> because Elon Musk, Elon Musk, these guys, I know some of these guys, I don't know Musk, but I know one of the guys that brought Tesla to Australia, who knows Musk, and, and they're all into Tesla. These are technology guys, but there is a spirituality in Tesla's whole understanding of knowledge that is so profound that he, you would say he's a yogi. You've got to read about Tesla. Tesla is really like the man. He talks about, in fact, creating infinite energy, pulling infinite energy out of, out of nowhere. But they shut him down because obviously you, oh, want, to sell, you want to sell electricity. But he was working on, at the time he died, he was working on something that was going to give the, the earth unlimited free energy. So you've got to imagine that here we are sitting in 2019 thinking we know it all. Meanwhile, the planet's going to hell in a handbasket. But, but beyond that, if we can get beyond that and we can stop destroying each other and get ego out of the picture and stop this whole madness and as, as one united humanity start to really um, explore the bigger questions of, you know, what our true potential is then I think you start you'll start to see these kind of discoveries coming more and more and I would imagine that meditation will just be a standard part of everybody's daily regime because you know already what tremendous transformational power it is doing in your life and by extension the lives of people around you you see that right the harmony, the, the, the sense of well-being, of contentedness, of the love, the, the joy that rises up. These are all attributes of advanced humans. That we, that If you look at the bulk of humanity, they're not in that state yet. So what we're doing is, a, is more advanced in, in the sense that we're sincerely looking for the answers to the really big questions. Most people are only concerned about, you know, who's going to win the footy or, you know. But it's still basically everybody's looking. Everybody is searching. Everybody's searching for that ultimate perfection and mm. love and in, but mostly externally. So mm. yeah, they've forgotten that it dwells within instead of externally. Yeah. Is it advanced or is that... Basic. What we're doing? Well, we're going to the fundamental questions. In a sense, it's basic. It, well, I wouldn't say basic. I'd say it's more fundamental. But like you say, I mean, everyone basically is looking for the same thing. They just don't realize that they're all looking. Well, they're looking for happiness. That the issue is not what they're looking for, it's, it's what, how they're choosing to find it. That they're mistaking, as you say, it's, they're looking for it in the external world through things. Mm -hmm. 
materialism. Material things and relationships and things that they can manifest or control and manipulate and possess. And that this is the sort of um, unchallenged mythology of life in our culture. I think that it comes from the external object mm. rather than from within. Right. So the dharana we used to do when with the chocolate, some of your favourite, is that you take a piece of chocolate, put it in your mouth, you savour it, you really get into the experience of delight and the bliss of that taste. And then you swallow the chocolate and stay with the feeling. So where is that? Where is that coming from? Where mm. is that it didn't come from. from it, it didn't come, come from, from the, the chocolate. chocolate. The chocolate is just the trigger. So we do these crazy things sometimes where we go and um, get chocolate or what else did we use? Strawberries. Even a glass of water. You could do it with water. So the idea is where do you where do you, where is joy experienced? We seek chocolate or alcohol or relationships or, you know, the whatever, stimulus, new handbag, for the joy that it, can that it can bring us. But in fact, the joy that we're experiencing at the moment of the fulfillment of the desire is always experienced inside of us. We just want the trigger. Yeah, and we mistake the trigger for the... We mistake the, the catalyst for, or the stimulus for the response. Or what the yogis figured out was you can go straight to the response, you can go straight to the joy without recourse to the external object. And so suddenly you become completely self-sufficient because you now no longer need anything to be just perfect in the external world in order to be happy. And we've got techniques to do that. It's a bit, hard. It's a bit like when you learn that you can give compassion and kindness to yourself and right. comforting. Yeah. You can give it to yourself. So As well. No, it's true. But often the way to find that is by giving it to others first mm. and then the feeling. But the feeling of compassion is all, always felt here, isn't it? I'm helping you, but I'm feeling it. So we're both benefiting. It's win-win. This is this. What I love about all this is it's so totally win-win. People say yoga is selfish. You know, they, they couldn't be more wrong. Yes, I have to help myself first. But, but think, by the time I've got to the state where I am so charged up and so in my love and in my, in my invincibility, I can go out and help anybody. Have you ever seen anyone that's suffering go and help somebody else? They're no use to even themselves. <laughs> See, first you've got to fix yourself. But the ultimate game, and see, remember when ego falls away, there is no other anymore anyway, it's all you. So you're helping them, you're helping yourself, what's the difference? This is the higher understanding of it. Compassionate, being compassionate to yourself is where you begin. Loving yourself is where you have to begin. But it's not the end of the game, that's just the way in. Anyway, that was a pretty fascinating discussion. <laughs> and now we're going to meditate so um, what we'll do is um, for those of you that are new I'll give you a general guidance for those of you that have done the training you just use the technique that you've been shown that you use 
And so we're going to meditate for 15 minutes. And what we're going to do is we're going to be the receptacle. Okay, so the, key, the invitation is to be empty. So we start by closing our eyes. And we're sitting comfortably upright. Why don't we start with a little intention that we're giving ourselves permission to move outside of the mind, the noisy mind, and we're really yearning for a deep, authentic experience of self. And a good place to begin is with the breath. because bringing the awareness to the breath will ground us in the present and it gives us something to allow the attention, the awareness to be with other than the thoughts and the thoughts may still be there lingering in the background to the sides but we gently return the awareness to the breath each time And then we follow the breath into the, scent, the stillness that arises in the space between the breaths. There is the stillness. And the process of meditation is simply moving through one plane, the awareness with the breath, into another plane, which is the ground state or the state of absolute stillness that sits behind the breath or between the breaths. And if we're using mantra, then we use mantra to carry us deep, deep, deep into the stillness. And I'll speak again in 15 minutes.
Now gradually bring your awareness back to the breath. Into the physical body. And we're going to finish with a compassion and gratitude meditation. So keeping the eyes closed. Raise the palms up level with the shoulders, facing out. Imagining a stream of golden white light coming down through the top of the head and out through the hands and the heart and directing it with a feeling of great kindness and compassion to all beings on earth. Those who are suffering, send them reassurance, support. Those who are sick, send them healing. Feel this energy move through you as you think of those who are lost, confused, despondent. Send them comfort, reassurance and protection. All those who are in need, send them the relief that they seek. Those who are fearful, send them courage. Anyone in particular you know who is sick or suffering, bring their image in front of you and send them the healing or the relief, the support that they need. If you can do this with a feeling of kindness, compassion and love, then this makes the process more powerful. Visualize the planet as a sphere in space floating in front of you as a ball. Notice the clouds, the continents, the ocean. And bless the planet, all beings on it. The environment, ecosystems and habitats restored to harmony, equilibrium and balance. The earth, air, the soil and water, all systems supporting life, restored and replenished. As you send loving kindness to all sentient beings, plants and animals, with a feeling of benevolent kindness. Now bring the palms together in front of the heart and summon up a deep sense of gratitude, the most profound sense of gratitude that you can locate and generate within yourself. Become the feeling of gratitude as you recall all those who have helped you in your life, your parents, your teachers, the family, all those who have supported you educated you, nurtured you, protected you, cared for you, provided for you. Feel the gratitude. Be grateful for the food, the clothing and the shelter that sustain you. All the blessings of your life, the opportunities, the gratitude for your health, 
finally feel gratitude for the teachers of the tradition of yoga, the masters that go back to the beginning of time for their guidance and wisdom teachings that we apply and we practice for the benefit of ourselves and all those we come in contact with. And with this feeling of gratitude, lower the palms and in your own time, re-engage with the room, the senses. You can open your eyes when you're ready, but not before. Questions, observations. Empty. Empty. Are you all receptacles. <laughs> Is gratitude basically the grace? Gratitude, grace. Gratitude draws grace. Grace is hard to define. Basically, it's the blessings that come to you in your life as a result of two processes. The principal one is surrender, but I think gratitude is a vast, in fact, good point that you raise this because we've never really considered the relationship between gratitude and surrender before, but I would say that gratitude would be a catalyst or an accelerant or a, an enhancer of surrender, that if you could bring gratitude. Surrender means basically open, being empty, open, realizing that you don't have all the answers. Having the attitude of one who is, you know, in ancient times they talk about the supplicant. You throw yourself on the mercy. It's this, this idea, it's a completely, it's an idea that is totally anathema to the idea of ego, which is that I, I'm, you know, I know everything, I'm in control. The arrogance that we carry as humans is a product of ego. The, the, the whole surrender is the complete flip side of ego, where we're saying we don't have all the answers. When I say we, we within this limited body-mind concept of ourselves is obviously not the totality. And what we're saying essentially to the universe is that um, you know, I'm ready to receive the things that, that I need right now. So the surrender turns into the grace. The surrender then draws the grace. When you, it's sort of like when you get to the end of your tether. <laughs> That's surrender. It's like you, you realize that you can't fight it anymore. Yeah, it's like it's beyond your capability to use just willpower and brute force to try and solve a problem, whatever it might be, it's beyond you. And so you're basically just saying, help, you know, I need help. Calling for whatever it is that you need. And if you do it with the right attitude, I, I think the help comes. And it's the surrender and the grace. Mm. So the grace and the surrender, I've done talks on this, the grace-surrender dynamic, but basically the two are linked. 
like this. And the example our teacher used to give was when the calf goes to the cow to feed and it nuzzles up against the cow's udder, then the milk comes, the cow, the cow cannot withhold the milk in that situation it flows as a direct consequence of the calf's plea, its call. That's the sort of idea that we're talking about. So that if we believe that everything that we need is somewhere, maybe, when I, I don't really mean to say out there because it's really in here, but it's the recognition that there is a something greater than our limited concept of self that potentially can provide us with what we need but we need to we need to give it the opportunity to do it and so the surrender is the trigger that basically says I'm ready to receive it comes back to this concept of receptacle really it's a large part of the theme today is this idea of being don't don't be too full of yourself get to the point where you say you know it's okay to say I don't know uh, or you know people love even in life if you say to someone can you help me usually they do but if you don't ask how do they know so you're signaling that there is a, a need and if there's a need and there's an openness then you're setting up the circumstances in which the solution can come. And in fact, the grace surrender dynamic is very similar to the problem solving thing that we used before, as you get to the end of the brainstorming and you can't solve it. So you have to release it, you surrender the problem, and then the answer comes. So it's really the same thing. But it could be your health, or it could be your financial situation, or it could be someone else that's sick or suffering. And don't ask me where it comes from. I don't think it is ex I mean, we have concepts of God and angels and spirits and this and that, but ultimately, if you believe that it's all consciousness, then why equally couldn't it just be an aspect, a, a more powerful, greater aspect of yourself that you're calling to? These are just words, you know, these are just concepts, but the, this is the idea, it's the feeling is the important thing. It shifts you out of that smaller self. Exactly. And allows you to realign with your greater self. Right. But it's the key, I think, to all of this is the feeling, holding that feeling. You yourself give yourself your, the grace. You give yourself, you're the bestower of the grace as well but it's the higher self. But do you get this idea, it's the, why we do the thing about having the feeling of compassion and the feeling of the surrender and the feeling of the gratitude? There is something, I think, that is in the feeling that gives it the power. It's not in the thought. It's not up here, it's here. You can't fake it. Mm -mm. It's got to be... It has to be felt. And when the surrender is complete, the grace flows unrestricted. That's how it works. And you can test it, but I mean, that's true in our experience, isn't it? I mean, have, have you all had experiences of that? You've called for help? Not always externally, but you've got to just signal 
and then it's there. You got to believe it, otherwise life's hopeless. <laughs> but see, even in the hopelessness, this is interesting, isn't it? Remember when Eckhart Tolle got to the point in his book where he said, I can't do this anymore. I can't live with myself. And that's when the grace can't you see that there it is right there. I can't live with myself anymore. So he's really has tried everything to get out of this misery that he's in and he cannot crack it. And in that moment, the whole world just disintegrated and he just became whole all at once. He surrendered to it. Absolutely. But the surrender, notice the surrender had to come first. That, that seems to be the way it works. So it's basically just stepping outside of the arrogant self, the egoic self that thinks it knows everything. It's like the full bottle that can't be filled anymore. And what we're doing is we're just turning that around. Anyway, you have to apply this stuff. I and mean, it's one thing to talk about it, but you've got to go and, if you go and test it against your experience, then, then you'll be the judge. Okay, we'll see you all next. No, we won't so, see you next week. So what day?